Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer. And today on the podcast, we have a presidential candidate, Andrew Yang. Yeah, you probably never heard of him, but you should. He's talking about a lot of different things. Like he wants to give everybody in the country, everybody, $1,000 a month. He calls it the freedom dividend. And he thinks it would boost the economy and help out a lot of the losses we're going to face because of automation. He's also talking about a lot of interesting other ideas like free marriage counseling for all. And instead of measuring our success by how the stock market's doing, he wants to talk about how is our mental health? How is our substance abuse rate? A lot of ideas coming up next with Andrew Yang on It's All Political. Andrew Yang, welcome to It's All Political. Welcome to San Francisco. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, yeah. There's going to be some people listening right now who have a nagging question. Who is Andrew Yang? Yes. And I get that a fair you amount. Get a lot, you get that a lot. And why he should be president. Um, but let me just also say that, I mean, you've got a big crowd waiting to see you. Arguably, you're one of your biggest, you say, here in, tonight in San Francisco. Yes. A few thousand people. Yeah. And you will be on the stage at the first Democratic debate. And the second, actually. They're tied together, June and July. So people will, will definitely be hearing your name a lot now. In your best, uh, you're, a, you're a technology entrepreneur uh, from New York. In your best uh, pitching to VCs spiel, give us your pitch. Why are you different than the other 106 Democrats running for president? Uh, there are no 106. There are, I think, 15. <laughs> uh, so I, I just want to frame it in terms of the problem you're meant to solve. Uh, and so the problem I'm trying to solve is why did Donald Trump win the election of 2016? And to me, the reason he won is that we automated away 4 million manufacturing jobs in Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Missouri, Iowa, all the swing states he needed to win and did win. And what we're now going to do, what we, now what we did to the manufacturing jobs, we're now going to do to the retail jobs, the call center jobs the fast food jobs, and most disastrously, eventually, the truck driving jobs. So we're in the third inning of the greatest economic and technological transformation in the history of the country. And Donald Trump is a symptom. He's a manifestation. And I'm running for president to raise uh, America's sights to the fact that it's not immigrants that are causing these economic problems. It is advancing technology and the evolution of our economy, and then orient us around meaningful solutions. So you... Uh You've never held elective office before. You've never run for elective office before. We, we already have a first-timer for president. Now, why should we trust you to do this? Well, if you, if you reflect on it, uh, the American people have been casting about for some sort of change agent for the last number of elections. So here you have Donald Trump, um, who I, I believe is a terrible president. Uh, but also Bernie Sanders is outside success last time. And I'm sure many people listening to this uh, really liked Bernie and like him still. Uh, and even Barack Obama's election in 2008, uh, which was in many ways a change election, election. So you have to ask yourself, why is it that all of these change candidates keep doing so well? Uh, and I'm going to suggest that it's because we've recognized on some level that our government is behind the times and is not actually responding to the challenges of today. Now, uh, it's true that 
Donald Trump is our president. He hadn't held elective office. But Donald Trump gives all entrepreneurs a bad name. And it is not the case that all entrepreneurs are Donald Trump. Mm. Uh, most entrepreneurs I know regard Donald Trump as a fraud, as a marketing charlatan. He was, he was not popular here in the Valley, the land of entrepreneurs, yeah, exactly. for many reasons. Yeah. Uh, and, and so to me, it's not about what someone's background is. You just have to find the right person with the right vision and values. And that person's background uh, can be whatever the American people identify. You have uh, arguably the uh, richest amount of material policy prescriptions on your website than any candidate out there. So there are some candidates are rather thin. So I would encourage people to who want to look up your policy positions to go there. But sort of as a, as a as an as an ethos, do you think that many people come from business to politics always talk about running government like a business? Do you believe that that's true? Well, I think trying to run government like a business is super dumb um, because they're different things. And if you came into government and acted like a CEO, it would not work. I've been a CEO and then you can direct people and you pay them. So they're like, all right, I guess we'll do that. Um, but you know what else I've done? I've run a national nonprofit with hundreds of stakeholders and hundreds of donors. And there you have to co continuously win consensus and unify people around a vision and get people to work together. And that's much closer to the role of an executive in a government seat. But I will say that there are some lessons our government can learn from business, and here's one. Why is it that we all dread tax day? Uh, and it's because our government treats us not like um, valued citizens. It's just like, okay, you have to do this. It's a thankless chore. So what I would do as president, I would declare a national holiday on tax day. I would rebrand it revenue day. <laughs> I would have uh, our taxes get pre-filled out to the extent that's possible, which it is very possible now. I mean, they have most of the information. Uh, and then you would have a video that's shown to you with all these government employees thanking you for uh, your contribution. Because if you were a business and you got hundreds of billions in revenue on a particular day, you'd be thanking everyone. You'd be like, oh. Mm -hmm. And and our and our government instead is just, again, this like thankless chores, like our oh, taxes. And no wonder people... Like don't think that don't know where their money's going. Don't think it's going to something good. So you at least show the minimum. It's like, look, here's where it's going, and you can elect where to give the last one percent. You can pick a program that you really like, and then our attitude towards revenue day would improve. So that's a sort of business principle, just like value your customers and thank them. That I think the government could implement. But generally speaking, running the government like a business is nonsense. The core of your campaign is uh, your. Your main policy proposal is universal basic income. You would give every adult, everyone, from Mark Zuckerberg on to on down, one thousand dollars a month. They could spend it on whoever they want to. Everyone over eighteen, that is. Yep. Um, and you would pay for it with a value-added tax, which is something that's popular in Europe. Explain a little bit about uh, how that would work: a thousand dollars a month, and why? Why would you give this? What, what's the What's the point of this? And and would this, rep would this replace the social safety net that we have in place now? So my plan is it's supplementary to the existing social safety net. I know that millions of Americans rely upon various programs every day and every month for their survival, and I am the last person who want to take that away from anyone. Um, so my proposal is that we offer a freedom dividend of $1,000 a month to every American adult, um, and you can opt in. And if, uh, you know, you like your current programs as superior to $1,000 cash, then, you know, then we don't 
touch you and you say, okay, like I don't want that. Uh, but $1,000 cash in everyone's hands, uh, consider we're in a country where 78% are living paycheck to paycheck, 57% can't afford an unexpected $500 bill. Here in San Francisco, people are routinely working uh, multiple gig jobs in order to make ends meet because the costs are so high. Mm-hmm. So $1,000 a month, what does that mean in real life to Americans? It means your kids are getting better food and better nutrition. It means that your physical health improves, your mental health improves, your relationships improve, graduation rates go up. Um, and in a macroeconomic sense, um, business formation goes up, arts, creativity, volunteering, well, all the why positive they things that you Because you have this extra money, you can afford to more time to, to do those things? Or yeah, or yeah, uh, completely. I mean, there are people listening to this, and $1,000 a month is not a game changer for a lot of people in the Bay right. Area. But if you look around the country, that's actually a very significant change. Um, and so you would see, first you would see a lot more consumer buying power in many, many communities. Like if you were to take a town in Missouri with 50,000 adults after I'm president in 2021 and we pass the freedom dividend, that's another $50 million of spending power, most of which is going to stay in that community. So if you look at that community, is that community going to have like more restaurants and bakeries and a more active like uh, you know mechanic and tutoring services and everything else? Yes. So that ends up translating into um, additional dynamism and energy in that community, but then also would people donate a bit more money to their local church, nonprofit, like arts organization? Also, yes. Um, would people who live someplace inexpensive feel like, you know what, I can actually scrape by in a thousand? Like maybe I'll give this, um, you know, creative project a try. So it, it would be one of the greatest catalysts to creativity and culture in the history of our country. Do you, you mentioned uh, how that would go less far in the Bay Area? Have you given any thought to sort of? Uh, you know, sort of uh, geot- geotagging it, like maybe the San Francisco dividend could be $1,500 a month, or the one in, you know, the middle of Missouri would be $800 a month. What's the um, the value in the universality of it? Well, the, you don't want a situation where people are literally like pretending to live someplace and then like going someplace else and you have to keep track of where everyone lives. Um, mm-hmm. The other thing, though, is that people who live in San Francisco, a lot of people are choosing to live here because they believe it will afford them access to certain opportunities that are not available someplace else. So there are trade-offs that people are already making. And my optimism is that if you have people in the Bay Area like, oh, my gosh, I'd much rather live a, you know, a, a simpler life someplace that's a little cheaper – um, and the $1,000 a month like actually might help me do that. And then there might even be people on the other end being like, hey, I've always wanted to give San Francisco a try. Hmm. And then with this $1,000 a month, like maybe I can at least survive and couch surf and like do some things. Because right now, if you look at the big picture stats, uh, business formation and interstate migration are both at multi-decade lows in the U.S. So people just aren't moving. Um, and I'm going to suggest that's bad. I'm going to suggest that getting people moving in both directions would be a good thing. Uh, explain how the value-added tax would, would work, because I think many people in this country aren't familiar with it. It would it would tax basically something along every point of the uh, food chain, if you will. Yeah, right? that's right. And the reason Walk why every, every other advanced economy already has a value-added tax, except for us, because it's much, much harder to game. As we all know, how much did Amazon pay in federal taxes last year? A bupkis. Zero, right? They paid right. less than us. How does that make sense? And I'm going to suggest that's not Amazon's fault. It's their job to minimize their tax burden. You know whose fault it is? It's our fault. We have a system that they can game so easily. So every other country looked at the situation and said, hey, we have a value-added tax. That gets the public a slice of every Amazon sale, every Google search, every robot truck mile eventually. Um, Because the trap we're in as a society right now is that more and more value is going to get sucked up into the hands of a handful 
of companies and the American public is going to look around wondering where the money went. So you need to have something like a value-added tax that harnesses the gains from some of these new innovations and brings some of those resources into the public. And the great thing is that the money comes directly to us. Jeff Bezos and the gang are still going to get their money because you know it's going to cycle back to them when we order stuff. And that is a much better situation to be in than the track we're on now. So you could even tax something like, you know, Facebook makes its money on advertising revenue. Oh, yeah. Where would, it, where would the tax too. be there? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, if it's... If if values changing hands, like if I'm a you know company and I'm paying Facebook like a million bucks to advertise to people, oh the value add tax would be there too, um, and then we get a slice of that. And you, you have you have rebranded this. You know, mostly it's traditionally been known as universal basic income, but you have rebranded as you sort of alluded to earlier as the freedom dividend. Yes, be- because why? I love this. Oh, because it tests much better with more Americans with the word freedom in it. Because with, because if it's called freedom. Mostly conservatives will be more into it, correct? Yeah, I mean, we, we, tested, we tested various names with various groups of people. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a numerate data-driven type. Mm-hmm. Uh, and liberals and progressives liked it around the same level no matter what you called it. Prosperity, dividend, social security for all, universal-based income, essentially uniform. Conservatives did not like it until it had the word freedom in it. Wow. Um, and then approval shot up. So then if you're practical, you look at it and be like, all right, the freedom dividend it is. Because, you know, it's not like liberals and progressives dislike the freedom dividend and they liked it just oh fine. God, I love that. That's like we can have some freedom fries with that as well. Sure. Who, who would not be for the freedom dividend? Yes. And I'm going to suggest if you're listening to this right now, you're like, wow, um, this will never happen. It can happen as long as 51% of us just make it happen. Thomas Paine was for a citizen's dividend at the founding of the country. Martin Luther King championed it in 1967 before he was killed. Milton Friedman and a thousand economists signed a study saying we should do this. It passed the House twice in 1971, and it's already been in effect in one state for 37 years, and that state is Alaska. And so if Alaska can do it with oil money, why can we not do this for ourselves? Sarah Palin talked about it a lot during when she was running for uh, vice president. Yeah, those are good the, times, right? Yeah, those <laughs> – but it's, it is a similar idea. A tax on the revenue from oil companies went to every Alaskan. So that everybody and they love it, and and that's a conservative state, and they love their dividends so much. That's one of the things. If you're progressive, and we have these programs that we we love and cherish, um, you know, it's hard because they're not universal. Whereas this would make it universal, and everyone loves it. Think about the fact that this dividend's been in effect in Alaska for 37 years across all these administrations, and no one can touch it because Alaskans love it so much. Let's talk about healthcare a little bit. In your book, The War on Normal People, which you have uh, offered to me. Uh, for free right here. It's almost, that's like my freedom dividend right here. Yes. Um, you say, uh, you, you write that the, quote, the most direct way to do so, this is in terms of healthcare, would be to move towards a single payer healthcare system in which the government both guarantees healthcare for all and negotiates fixed prices. This is an excellent way forward and a Medicare for all gradual phase in will give the industry time to plan and adjust. So, I mean, intrinsic in that is you're, you're saying that you'd like to see the health insurance companies we know now to go away. How would that work, that gradual phase in, and how long would that take? Because I think so often we, you know, we say, Medicare for all, we're going to come in, Andrew's going to pass it, and we're all going to you know, be on Medicare for all within six months. How, how, do you, how do you game that out? What you could do is you could lower the eligibility age by 10 years. To get into Medicare. Yeah, to get into Medicare. You could lower the eligibility age by 10 years. Uh, every two years. And then that gives you something like, you know, a 10-year phase in. Um, and then during this time, 
every uh, you know, most of the private health insurance companies would go out of business in this scenario. But you don't want to literally just go up to them and be like, hey, you're out of business tomorrow. So at least this way, then the investors would look at it and be like, and this business has no future. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> would, would get out of it. Um, so well, what uh, happened to those hundreds of thousands of millions of Americans employed by the, by the health sector and the, and the 80% of us who get our health care through our work? Well, you can continue, and it's not that the private insurance goes away. I'm not in the, and it's true. Like that, that passage from my book suggests that I would um, uh, get rid of all private insurers. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's a private insurance uh, carrier that can compete with a quality public option, then it can continue to exist. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the goal is to to uh, one of the reasons why the freedom dividend is so important is like, look, we can make any move that would be good for the American people, like getting rid of these private insurers. And then of course, there are other Americans who work for those companies. But does that mean we're not allowed to make any changes that we know are beneficial? So it's one reason why the freedom dividend is so important, is that we know if everyone's getting $1,000 a month, then at least it'll help ev- everyone transition, including the people who work for the private health insurance companies that are producing very little productive value and are essentially a tax on the American people. You have a, uh, a number of really interesting ideas uh, on, on your website, and again, I encourage listeners to go there to, to explore them as you would with any, with any candidate. One of them is free marriage counseling for all. How would that work, and, and why should uh, government be getting into that? Well, I'm a parent. I've got two young children, six and three, uh, and the numbers on uh, children who are born to unmarried mothers in the U.S., right now it's 40% of all American children. Um, up from 15% when I was growing up. Mm. Now, there are a number of reasons for that, but the data um, shows that if you grow up in a single-parent household and it's generally a single mom, um, then some of your uh, outcomes are more adverse and difficult. Whereas if you grow up in a two-parent household, then the outcomes get better. So if you're a society and you see this, you say, you know what? If people are married and they want to stay together, that might actually be really good for uh, their children and society. And maybe there are obstacles for them getting that sort of counseling. Maybe they can't afford it. Maybe there's a stigma attached to it. Um, and so if you can see that it's going to be a massive win for your country and maybe the next generation, then the least you can do is say, look, if you want to stay together, we can at least try and help. And, and you're okay with two men, two women? that you're, you're Oh, not, yeah. You're not hung up on it. The joys of marriage are universal. <laughs> Uh, my wife is listening to this point, so we'll keep. We're, usually, she usually cuts off after about fifteen minutes, so I'll I'll, I'll uh, keep going. There. Um, you also are into uh, life skills, uh, educational high schools. You you think that the NCAA should pay athletes, and this is of course a very <laughs> salient topic lately. Um, why is? Tell me how that would work. And again, why should why should government give a crap about that? Well, so you have to think about what message is being sent, is that if you have young people who are risking their health to enrich universities and athletic directors and coaches who in some cases are making million-dollar salaries, mm-hmm. uh, and then those kids are scrounging for meal money and sometimes wind up with like a very uncertain future, uh, is that right? Uh, like, Why is it on, uh, on those kids mm-hmm. to enrich the institutions and, and their coaches? And so at a minimum... You should allow these athletes to benefit from memorabilia sales and autographs and their likeness on video games and all that stuff at a minimum. But as you know, what I'm suggesting is you should go a step further and say, look, if you've got essentially a business living inside your school, then you need to start a business inside your school and start trying to pay people appropriately 
and also not enjoy tax exemptions for it. Because why are we giving a tax exemption to a school to essentially operate us, you know, like a business in its midst. I mean, we have to call a spade a spade. It's just a terrible message to young people saying, look, like it's okay for these institutions and these adults to exploit you. So you don't think the value of getting a free education, as many athletes on scholarship do, is not reward enough? Well, let me make clear that I'm only referring to uh, particular types of athletes that generate lots of revenue for the school. So, football so, players, yeah, basketball yeah. players. Division one yeah. basketball players okay. who like are going to sell lots of jerseys. Mm-hmm. If you're an, an NCAA student athlete who's, you know, getting a normal scholarship and um, uh, getting like a, an education out of it, then that's a that's a totally great deal. I'm talking specifically about the people that are big money makers. Okay. Um, the other thing is that I, you also would talk about if you were to be president, you would want to shift the way we measure success in this country. Right now, the president talks about, oh, the stock market's up. So it's, dumb. It's, 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 <laughs> things are going great. Yeah, and the they GDP take credit for great. it like they did something <laughs> that minute. It's so bad. I mean, if anything, we should be judging presidents on what happens eight years later. You know, like whose fault was the financial, like, crash? I mean, you can retrace the steps, but it started with started with Clinton-era deregulation. So... You know, you can't blame someone for what happens like that day uh, in a society like this one. So you you would want to measure it by things like what is our uh, our health adjusted life expect- expectancy? What how's our mental health? What's the childhood success rate? What's the social and economic mobility? What's the absence of substance abuse? And this this stuff, I mean. Andrew, I want to give you a hug when you're oh, measuring good. a company like this. But uh, this sounds but again, practically, how do you do this? How do it's you, so do, easy. How it, it, let, let it, me, sounds, let, let, it sounds easy on paper. But all go right, ahead. so check, you, check this out. Right. We made up GDP almost 100 years ago. Just during the Great Depression, and uh, the government was like, we need a number to see, see how badly things are going. After I'm president in 2021, I'm just going to walk down the street to the Bureau of Labor and Statistics and say, hey, guys, GDP is almost 100 years old. It's time for an upgrade. So here's what I'm going to recommend. Uh, health-adjusted life expectancy, childhood success rates, environmental quality. We have numbers for all these things. Build a composite scorecard and just start communicating economic progress that way. Because as we're talking right now, GDP is record high. You know what else is record high? Suicides, drug overdoses. Our life expectancy has declined for three straight years, first time in a century. So what does high GDP do for you if your people are dying? And a lot of Americans don't even know that we are dying younger on the whole. So if you can't get the measurements right, then you can never make progress. So we need to, but I am happy to say you don't even need Congress for this. I'm just going to say, hey, go down the street, GDP, guess what? This is the new scorecard. And then I'll report on the scorecard every year at the State of the Union and say, here's where we are. Eight Americans are dying of drugs every hour. That's horrifying. So let's get it down to four in the next three years. And here's how we're going to do it. And then actually have goals that we can celebrate as a country. Because who wakes up pumped up about GDP? Nobody. Um, and the stock market prices, the bottom 80% of Americans own 8% of stock, and the bottom 50% own zero or near zero. So celebrating something that only reflects the fortunes of the top 20% of our country is stupid. And <clears throat> that's, it leads into something that you, is a pillar of your campaign, which is called human-centered capitalism. We hear about that a little bit in the Valley. How? What is your interpretation of what that is? It's, it's not that... Uh, Money is, should not be our end goal. And this is, talk about societal shifts. How would you, tell us about how you envision human-centered capitalism. So this is tied to it, where if I make someone in my community stronger, or I help get someone off of drugs, or I help reintegrate someone uh, into society after they come out of jail, um, right now that would be rewarded not at all really by the, you know, by uh, GDP or 
our current mode of progress. And so the goal is to say, look, if you can help us move on one of these uh, scorecard dimensions, then that counts as economic progress. And at first, you're just patting people on the back. But eventually, you could tie tax breaks to it or various incentives um, because we, we have to get honest about what's going on in our country, where if I'm a CEO of a business, which I have been, um, I can talk about my values and all the good things. But at the end of the day, I'm just accountable for quarterly profits. And the quarterly profits make it so that uh, increasingly having people around is not that helpful. Like if you look at Uber, Uber employs hundreds of thousands of drivers. Does anyone listening to this have any doubt that they're going to replace them with self-driving cars and trucks in every right. uh, single context they can? Because their job is not to employ lots of humans. Their job is to get us from point A to point B. Uh, and that's going to be better for them. And so their incentives all skew in one direction. So if you wanted to say, look, maybe we think it's a good idea for certain companies to treat their employees well or give them health insurance, the market will not reward that. And so we have to come up with a system that does. One of the things you talk about a lot is how it's a very futuristic look about uh, artificial intelligence, how it's going to totally transform our economy. And one of the things you talk about is uh, truck driver. And a stat that I didn't know of, truck driver is the most popular job in 29 states in this country. I know truck drivers, but I didn't know it was that popular. Um, and 94% uh, are male. Average age is about 49 Average education is high school, and they're making $46,000 a year. But if AI comes in, if we have self-driving trucks, as we're very close to having, then what happens to the economy? People always say, oh, well, we can retrain those folks. But you're kind of offering a reality check here. Yeah, so um, of course we can't retrain those folks. I mean, you know, you just got to look at it. Like they didn't like school 30 years ago, and it's not, there's nothing has changed. I mean, I was just with a group of truck drivers in Altoona, Iowa, because that's what happens when you run for president. And uh, it's your first time in Altoona. Um, actually, at this point, I've been to Altoona several times. Wow. Um, I, th that was just my uh, my tenth trip to Iowa. Um, so, uh, if you were to go in there and say, "Hey, we're going to retrain you," like they would laugh at you, um, you know. And you you have to be real. Is that if you have a fifty year old former truck driver with health problems and a certificate from some government program we made up, um, are you going to hire that person or the twenty five year old community college graduate who's younger, cheaper, has more current skills? Uh, and you just all you have to do is look at the success or failure of the government-funded retraining programs for manufacturing workers in the Midwest. Because the success rate of those programs was between zero and fifteen percent. Then half of those workers uh, left the workforce, and then half of them filed for disability, and a significant proportion of them started to kill themselves. Um, and so, you know, like I studied economics in college, so I remember what the macroeconomic theory was that they'd all get retrained and reskilled. But you have to face facts; like that's just not happening. And the, the other thing you have to say is, like, why am I insistent that a coal miner should become a coder? And the reason is that we measure everyone by their economic value. And so if you have no economic value, then you have no value, and then you either must die or become something that we have um, – that we value in our country. And the market should not be the determinant of what our value is because if we rely upon the market to value us, we are doomed. And you know what else? The market will always value women and people of color at lower levels and that women will do the vast majority of the uncompensated and unrecognized work in our society. We have to evolve. And this technology wave that's coming is a crisis, but it's also an opportunity. And we have to seize that opportunity to evolve in our sense of our own human value. And the first big move is to give everyone a thousand bucks a month. And so what do you, do you do with that uh, soon-to-be-unemployed truck driver? What do, you, what, what do they do if they're not 
are they how are they retrained what what happens to them what's your plan for them so that is the generational challenge the challenge is how do we reconstitute structure purpose meaning and fulfillment for uh, whole communities and you know i'm going to suggest that we're going to be trying to address that for many years but pretending that the market will magically a- address that has led us to donald trump um, and i've been in those communities now for seven and a half years and I see what's going on. Uh, and if you want to see what's going on, you can come with me. Um, and so like, th- this is really the fundamental challenge. Now, the, the thing I'm happy about is that if you put 1000 bucks a month into people's hands, does that solve the problem? No. Does it get the boot off of people's throats in an existential way? Yes. Does that supercharge community organizations that might help begin to answer that question? Yes. Does it make it so that people can do more of the work that they actually want to do? Yeah. So there, there are all of these... Uh, things that cash will actually help with, at least um, on the ground here and now. Where do you see examples of, of how that will work? I know here in Stockton, uh, I'm sure you know Michael Tubbs, the mayor there, is trying something like this. Where, where are you looking at as for an example of this working? Well, again, all you have to do is look at Alaska, where it's created thousands of jobs, improved children's health, reduced income inequality, and it's wildly popular. And so if that's true in Alaska, it will also be true in Missouri. It will also be true in Oklahoma. Like, you know, we we just have to take a look at our own backyard. Uh, I also want to talk to you about uh, uh, tech, uh, given your background, where we are here. Uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren has talked about breaking up the tech companies like uh, Google and Facebook and Amazon. She said that uh, companies that are worth more than $25 billion should not be able to both offer their own products on on the platforms that they control. Um, she says the company should have to do one or the other, either sell your own stuff or operate a third-party market. I want to get, you know, given your background, where, do you, where are you at on this? Should these, these companies be broken up or, or is there another way to, to something else be done? We're, we've talked about a lot about concentration of uh, wealth and such. What, where do you think about this? Well, I think that the excesses of tech are clear for us all to see. And I do think that Senator Warren has a great point that it's hard to be an objective third-party platform when you're selling your own wares, and it's like very natural for you just to stick your own stuff, like you know, sort of front and center. And most people don't know what's your stuff. Um, right. But the temptation is to think that if we break up Amazon, it's going to somehow reconstitute all of the Main Street businesses or solve um, problems on the ground, and it probably will not. Uh, you know, the same is true of breaking up the social media companies. Like, does that solve fake news? Does that solve the um, depression problems like plaguing adolescent girls, like probably not. So we have to do is we can't take 20th century crude approaches to 21st century problems. Um, the antitrust laws uh, like are woefully out of date, and we need new ones. We need creative, sophisticated ones like trying to give us all uh, our own data as a property right. And so if, if companies profit from them, maybe that's okay, but we should get some of that money. And maybe we have like a preference dial where we say like you can use my data, but I want the money. Or you can't like a, use a data, my data dividend. Governor yes, Newsom is a data talking dividend. about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's you know a possibility. Uh, there are practices that we can push companies on. Now, are there excesses and abuses? Completely. But uh, to me, we need to have very, very sophisticated, nuanced approaches trying to solve the real problems. And the entire break them up thing um, may not be the right approach. Little, little too blunt. Yeah, it's like. Uh, Yes. Uh, you know, part of it, too, is like that the the fact is um, none of us wants to use the fourth best navigation app. Like like saying that, <laughs> hey, um, you know, like if we can just reintroduce competition, all will be well. It's like, right. no, like like technology has changed the game. 
and uh, we need to evolve in terms of our understanding. Um, on the day we're recording this, there was this horrific uh, shooting, as you know, in New Zealand where 49 people were slaughtered at two mosques uh, by a gunman. Um, you have very extensive gun uh, policy on your, on your site about this. But I want to get you, ask you about what's the, what's the role of the tech companies in, in monitoring some of the commentary the man was uh, making beforehand, the live video he showed of this? Is there, is there a role in that, uh, a role for them in, in monitoring this? Should they be doing it better? How can they do it better? And what's the role of government in this? Yeah, it's such a fundamental problem, and, and it's something that's very near and dear to, to you know, I mean, all of us here in this country. Uh, uh, the United States of America is the most heavily armed country in the history of the world. There are approximately 300 million guns in this country, almost one for every man, woman, and child. Uh, and so we can talk about gun control and gun safety, which I am for, mm-hmm. uh, but then the, the reality is there are so many guns in circulation um, that it's going to be very, very difficult to reduce the supply meaningfully. So what I would want to do is I would try and reduce the supply by offering voluntary gun buybacks all the time and uh, have complimentary upgrades to your gun so that only you can fire it. Um, so that makes it safer because then if your gun goes to someone else, and you might like it, and maybe you'd feel like safer yourself because like your you know kid can't shoot himself. And I saw you're also offering like tax rebates for people who do to implement some of these. Uh... Yeah, so I'm all for <clears throat> trying to do things that make it safer at the margins. Um, and I'm very worried about this because you can see again in the numbers, like we have increasing numbers of mental health problems, increasing levels of despair in various ways. Um, and so if you have an armed population, disintegration uh, could be horrific. But the the problem is that uh, is that passing a new gun law like probably does not – I mean I would do it. I would, I would love to work on meaningful gun safety legislation. Um, but – Unfortunately, uh, right now there are just so many guns in this country that it's going to be very, very hard. So one thing I would invest in that we can do that everyone can agree with is like a massive mental health initiative and then try and and identify people that need help and destigmatize it. I want to have a psychologist in the White House and say, look – we all have problems. If you have problems, like let's just get you some help um, so it doesn't get bad. In terms of tech companies monitoring like the hate chatter and the rest of it, um, there is something social about some of the atrocities where it's like you can tell with this shooter in New Zealand, like he really wanted to be seen and like like cheerleaded to. And so I do think that there is an important role for technology companies to help monitor uh, hate groups. Um, and uh, it, it's it's tough because at this point the technology is so widespread that even if you kick them off various groups, then they like you know like sprout up someplace else. Um, Is but, there a role in government for government in a heavier censorship arm or, or, or regulatory role in that? Um, well, you know the government's first role is to keep us safe. So yes, you know if if we can demonstrate that by uh, monitoring certain uh, information, like or or um, interceding. Um, because uh, you know, at this point, I mean, all you have to do is like what happened in New Zealand. I mean, you know, this is no longer speculative. And, and one of the things that I'd suggest is that um, – so there, there's this uh, – I, I talked to this uh, um, very sophisticated thinker, uh, Nick Bostrom, the um, AI uh, scholar. And he called it the vulnerable world hypothesis, which is that we're at a point now where some bad actor can do higher levels of harm than um, might have been possible in another era. Um, and so, I, like, you look – you know, I'm I'm not for um, heavy-handed uh, surveillance or you know, and like interfering in pres- in um, citizens' affairs. But uh, we have to face facts that if we wanted to prevent this sort of shooting, you would need uh, government to be um, 
fairly vigilant and have access to information that, you know, would involve monitoring various communications. And there's also been some concern about uh, some uh, very, very right-wing extremist folks uh, using your campaign as a meme on on, uh, some of these uh, social media sites. Are you concerned about that at all? Yeah, I mean, it's so strange because if anyone spends any time with me for a second, it's like I'm the son of immigrants, like I'm Asian American, I'm I'm like the first Asian American to run for president. So like, I I feel like, like someone must be out of their mind, honestly. I mean, I guess that's sort of the point that someone, you know, like could be out of their mind. Um, So like, I uh, uh, want nothing to do with any of those groups and that I don't want their support, don't want their votes, like don't want anything to do with them. Um, And... It's a, it's been a, a source of concern and mystery for us because we're looking at it being like, I'm not even sure how this happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, certainly most everyone can tell just by, again, spending any time around the campaign that that's the last thing we're about. And are you doing anything to, to change your security procedures or anything? Can you, can you encrypt anything to, 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 to thwart this stuff or is it just it's just kind of out there? Well, we're, we, you know, we certainly want to look out for anyone who's on our on our team and make sure that nothing untoward happens to anyone. Yes. Um, but, you know, we're going to have this rally to, today in San mm-hmm. Francisco, and you'll see it's going to be the most beautiful, wholesome, uh, progressive thing. And so, you know, you just can't let some, um, like, uh, online, uh, like, outliers, uh, you know, like, uh, um, you can't make too much of it. Right. So you've, you've had a, a, there's so many interesting ideas you're putting forward here. I, some of them very unusual and and uh, for a, a presidential campaign. Are you? I mean, the question I had was, are you really interested in being president or just floating these ideas out there? Well, I think there's a real appetite for solutions uh, in the U.S. And one of the reasons why I think my campaign's taken off is that people feel like we haven't been talking about the problems in like an honest way, such that we can solve them. Again, why is Donald Trump president? Uh, you know, if you say, look, it's the automation of jobs, which it is, and you mm-hmm. can just look at the voter district data, like there's a straight line up between adoption of industrial robots in a district and a movement to Trump. So like if you don't know what the problem is, you can't solve it. So I'm saying, look, this is the problem and here are the solutions. And if someone else has different solutions, then fantastic. Um, I think I'd make a great president, but I, I will say that you know, if someone else solves these problems and I'm not president, I would be thrilled. Like I'm just trying to do right by my country. Andrew Yang, thank you so much for being on It's All Political. No problem. Thank you. I'd like to thank you all for listening. I'd like to thank Andrew Yang for being here. He was feeling a little bit under the weather today, but he pulled through, so we appreciate that. I'd like to thank Libby Coleman for producing today's podcast. And remember, no matter how you spend your $1,000 a month, it's all political. It's All Political is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is our editor-in-chief. Our music, our theme music that we have is Cattle Call. That's written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. If you like this show, subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For more great journalism like this, subscribe to the San Francisco Chronicle at sanfranciscochronicle.com slash subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Garofoli. Thanks.